As Pastor Mike mentioned, if you don't know who I am, I'm Kendall Davis. I served as a vicar here a couple years ago, 2018 to 2019, and it is such uh, such a, a great opportunity to be back here. Uh, this place was uh, so important to me as I was training and learning to be a pastor, and I just want to begin by thanking y'all for everything that uh, y'all poured into me while the year that I was here and for giving me the opportunity to figure out what I'm doing. Uh, so thank y'all so much for that. It is a pleasure to be back here. Um, I figure uh, a lot of y'all are probably uh, curious about kind of what I've been up to in the past few years, so I thought I'd take a moment just to share a bit of that with y'all. So you may remember, uh, instead of going straight back to the seminary in St. Louis, I was going to take a year to study abroad at Cambridge in the United Kingdom. So I was there uh, 2019 to 2020, uh, had, a, had a great time, drank lots of tea. Um, of course, while I was there, I met someone. Uh, her name was Sam Wagner at the time. Uh, of course, I was uh, now my wife. Uh, and so we met there in the spring of 2020, uh, which made dating a little interesting sometimes. Um, and of course, when we were done, I went back to Concordia Seminary in St. Louis to finish up uh, my studies. And she went back to Concordia University in Chicago to finish up her DCE studies, Director of Christian Education. And so uh, we've both finished up our schooling uh, by now. Of course, I, uh, I realized I, I just really love classes and school and books, so I decided to keep going. So I started uh, recently this past year a PhD in New Testament at the University of Edinburgh, also in the United Kingdom, just a little further north. Uh, not as much tea, a little more coffee up there. Um, so I've been there the past year, just having a great time, just basically reading the Bible every day. Um, and I decided, though, to take a break this summer and get married. And so we just got married a month ago on Saturday. Uh, so I'm an expert in marriage now, basically. Um, you can ask Samantha if she agrees with me, but she's not here right now. So, um, so that's what we've been up to. And we're uh, about to go to Hungary, as she talked about before. So, uh, I mean, right now we're kind of traveling around and talking with congregations. And it's been a great opportunity to talk about God's mission, uh, the mission of God and kind of share some about how we've been thinking about our own kind of participation in God's mission, but also to have a chance to talk with congregations about kind of how they might think about their own work in God's mission, even in its, and especially in a time when it can look somewhat difficult. And so that's what we're going to do today, and I'm going to begin by telling a story. Elaine woke up, as she always did that Sunday morning, she got ready and had time for a quick cup of coffee before she went out the door. She used to always be in a rush when she taught the children's Sunday school class, but after so many weeks of no kids showing up, her and pastor decided it best she'd maybe try and start up Sunday school again next fall. It made Elaine sad, but what else could she do? As she drove to church that morning, she passed by another church in town that had closed down and been turned into a coffee shop. Ironically now, the old church building was bustling with people, lots of people, young people, families, even folks who were new to the area. Many people who would have never darkened that same church door before were now regularly huddled over lattes. It made her sad, but what else could she do? When she got to church, she sat towards the back of the sanctuary, even though she had a hard time hearing pastor back there. At least this way she could see who was there. There were so many people she hadn't seen for years. She remembered how she used to enjoy sitting next to her grandson, Thomas. He'd been quite active even through high school, but when he went to college, things started to change. She hardly saw him come to church anymore. 
She asked him about it once, and he said something about how he wasn't quite sure what he believed anymore. She, she tried to ask him what he meant, but wasn't very interested in talking about it. Didn't make much sense to her. And she knew Thomas wasn't the only one. It seemed that Elaine's church had lost all kinds of people over the years. Pastor always talked about how it was important to be confident to talk about your faith with others. But what do you do when others shut down as soon as the topic comes up? It made her sad, but what else could she do? I think Elaine's experience is far from you. Many Christians in this country and others feel like it's not the most hopeful time to be a Christian. It's easy to be worried about the future, the future of churches, future of the faith here in this country we call home, as well as the future of the faith throughout the world. Of course, this isn't the first time that the people of God have felt like this. The prophet Isaiah lived in a time almost 3,000 years ago when things did not look hopeful for people who follow God. A few centuries beforehand, the great kingdom of Israel that David and Solomon had built up had been torn apart by civil war. And then in Isaiah's own lifetime, he watches the northern kingdom be conquered by the Assyrians. And even though Isaiah lived in the southern kingdom, he knew the same fate could easily befall the south as well. The Assyrian armies were always on the march, ready to conquer any smaller kingdom that stood in their way. And that wasn't the only problem. For a long time, God's people had been beset by idol worship. Instead of worshiping God alone, people worshiped the gods of the nations around them. Isaiah himself says as much just a few verses after our text for this morning. And whenever archaeologists dig up an ancient Israelite town and look what they can see and find in these ancient people's houses, they almost always find tons of little idols, these little statues of Canaanite or Assyrian gods and goddesses that the Israelite people worshipped in their homes. While it can be easy to romanticize the history of the people of God in the Bible, we know from both the Bible and archaeology that it was not uncommon in Israel's history for the majority of Israelites to be idol worshippers. The people who rejected idols and only worshipped the Lord was sometimes just a small, faithful remnant. Israelite society had changed since the glory days of David and Solomon. Now, in Isaiah's day, anyone who refused to worship idols and was dismissed as old-fashioned and out of step with the times. And so things often looked hopeless for God's people in Isaiah's day. The worship of the Lord was declining, idol worship was on the rise, and Israel was surrounded by hostile nations. I'm sure it was easy for the few remaining Israelites to believe that this was not a particularly hopeful time to follow God. The situation looked bleak, to say the least. And this is the context in which Isaiah speaks the words that form the basis of today's sermon. Through Isaiah, God promises his people that even though things look bleak and hopeless now, in the future there will be a radical reversal. Even though the worship of God is on the decline, even though Israel is filled with idols, even though the nations around them are ready to conquer them, this is not the way that things would go forever. Here's how he says it. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. You see, the mountain of the house of the Lord refers to Mount Zion. 
small hill just outside of Jerusalem and where, where the temple was built and where Israel worshipped God. Of course, all the other ancient gods of the ancient Near East were also worshipped on their own mountains and hills. And so when Isaiah talks about Mount Zion being lifted up above all the other mountains and hills, this is a bold way of saying that one day the worship of the Lord will be lifted up in honor above the worship of all these other gods and goddesses. Even though in Israel the exclusive worship of God is derided and mocked as old-fashioned and out of step, the worship of Israel's one and only God will be given the honor it deserves among God's people. And what's more, the nations who constantly threaten Israel with destruction will not only give up their violent ways by beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, but they will come flowing up to Mount Zion like a river, not to corrupt or to destroy the worship of God, but unbelievably to take part in it themselves. Isaiah depicts the nations saying, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And this is the truly astounding thing for those who first heard Isaiah's words. Not only would the worship of the Lord be restored among the people of Israel, but even the nations would join in worshiping the God who made all things. God is giving his people a promise that no matter how hopeless things look right now, the worship of God will not die out, but God himself will ensure that his glory is made known, not only among God's people, but among all the nations as well. God is in charge, and he is on a mission to send out his word to every corner of the earth, to call back to himself his own people who have wandered from him, but also to call to himself new people who have never worshipped God before. I'm sure that to the Israelites of Isaiah's day, this sounded crazy. This sounded too good to be true. But it was God's promise, and God always fulfills his promises. After all, it was only about 700 years after Isaiah spoke these words that on a small hill just outside of Jerusalem, the word of God made flesh, Jesus, was lifted up on a cross to be executed by the Romans. In this Jesus, all the hopes and promises that God had made to Israel had been fulfilled. Jesus was God's anointed one, the chosen prophet, priest, and king who would finally do what no prophet, priest, or king before him could do. Through his death and resurrection, he would defeat Israel's true enemies, not the Assyrians or the Romans, but sin, death, and the devil. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that as Jesus was dying, the sun was darkened for three hours. When Jesus breathes his last, there's an earthquake. The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, and some of the dead even arose from their tombs and appeared to people in Jerusalem. And even though most of the Israelites there mocked Jesus and rejected him, Matthew records for us that there was a Gentile there, a Roman military officer who saw all of this, the darkness, the earthquake, and so on. And when this Gentile saw all these things, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And in that moment, another one of God's promises was fulfilled in Jesus. After all, Romans don't worship God. Romans don't acknowledge God's anointed one. And yet here is a Roman to whom the word of God made flesh has come, and who by God's good and gracious will and in his own timing has been made to see the light of the Lord 
and the light of the world. And of course, you probably know the rest of the story. Jesus is raised from the dead and sends his followers out to every corner of the world to proclaim to every nation what God has done through Jesus. In almost no time at all, the ranks of God's people swell with new additions from all tribes, peoples, and languages. But that was 2,000 years ago. And from where many of us sit in this particular corner of the world, it often looks like the mission of God has fallen on hard times. It can look like perhaps God's promise to the prophet Isaiah will never fully and completely become a reality. But realize that this is almost always how things look from a human perspective. From a human perspective in Isaiah's day, it looked like all of God's people would eventually fall into idol worship or the hands of the Assyrians. From a human perspective, Jesus didn't look like God's anointed one as he was dying on a Roman cross. And so also from a human perspective, in our day, it often looks like the proclamation of the gospel in communities both here and abroad is facing a hopeless uphill battle. This is all true, and yet God fulfills his promises anyway, in his time and in his way. No matter how bad things look to us, God is still at work fulfilling his mission as his word goes out among the nations even now. For example, as you already know, my wife and I are preparing to go to a small country in Central Europe, Hungary, where my wife, Samantha, will serve as a missionary teaching English at a Lutheran high school. You see, when the communists were in charge of Hungary for much of the 20th century, it was a dark time for the church. Pastors were arrested, churches were forced to shut down their schools, and it became incredibly difficult to be a Christian. From a human perspective, things looked hopeless. But since the fall of communism, the opportunities have changed dramatically. The churches are now freer and more able to do the work of proclaiming the word of God. And we are getting a chance to participate in this work. God is still at work fulfilling his mission. Consider this too. When Isaiah spoke these words from God 2,700 years ago, where were your ancestors? Unless you're ethnically Jewish, your ancestors were part of the nations that Isaiah is talking about. My own ancestors were probably running around northern Europe somewhere worshiping trees and rocks when God made this promise to his people. When Isaiah reminded the faithful remnant of God's people that all the nations would come to worship the God of Israel and would learn from God's word. That promise sounded ridiculous then, and it probably still sounded far-fetched almost a thousand years later in Jesus' day. But now look at how God has in his time fulfilled his promises and his mission. This church right here is filled with Gentiles, people whom no one in Isaiah's day would expect to gather together to worship Israel's God, to learn from his word, or to trust in his anointed son. And this is no anomaly. You'll be hard-pressed to find any country in the world today without some group of Christians doing the exact same thing. What we can take for granted as a matter of course would have been unbelievable to most of God's people for most of history. The very existence of this community and communities like it throughout the world is evidence of God's miraculous faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. God has over millennia sent out his word, not only through apostles, prophets, missionaries, and pastors, but also through faithful, faithful lay people and their day-to-day -day lives, 
And through all of these faithful servants of God, he brings the nations to worship him. And if God has been faithful so far, what more amazing things might he do in our world? We might not even see the fruits of it in our lifetime, but we still can trust that God will fulfill his mission and will make his promises reality. And so when the situation of the church today feels hopeless, when the newest round of depressing statistics hits the news, or when the culture around you just doesn't feel like it used to, take heart and know that these things are not new. This is nothing abnormal. God has done and is doing amazing things in our world through communities like this and through people like you. Your presence here is proof of that. And he's hardly done just yet.